you have arrived at the Draper University Metacast. Live from Hero City. Join us fireside as we talk to inspirational founders, Web3 pioneers, and multidimensional hustlers. Together, let's make a positive impact on this world and the others. Here's your host, Chris Joan Yu. Chris Joan Yu. Hey all, welcome to the Draper University Web3 Podcast. This is Chris Jonu, and I'm super proud uh, to present this series to you as I learn about you know everything from DeFi to the latest in NFTs and go on this journey both in uh, this world and the next across the metaverse um, and take you with me. That's really the idea. I'm incredibly passionate about the space. The energy with the entrepreneurs is kind of unquestionable and and the novelty of some of the business models that are emerging are a really exciting to me and so as i you know get to to utilize you know the draper network which has gives me unprecedented access to some of the best founders in the world um you know from a protocol level from an nft marketplace level because these guys were investors in in a lot of these companies very early on allows me to get the knowledge firsthand from the source and and get the learning the best learning possible and i wanted to share that with you um, i hope you enjoyed the series welcome everyone to the first episode of the draper web3 podcast and you know i'd be remiss if i didn't kind of start at the top and doesn't get much higher than andy tang partner at draper associates uh, one of the founders of draper dragon fund and really instrumental in the success of, of of the Draper kind of ecosystem, the Draperverse, I will say, um, and really a pioneer in the crypto space. Hundreds of investments in the you know all the names that you know about, and just a super interesting guy. So I start with his journey, everything from you know being an MIT researcher through to you know his role in high finance, and then on to venture capital and spotting trends well before anyone had done so right from investing in china and obviously given the you know the premise of the podcast the crypto space and really wanted to just dig deep and hear you know what got him excited about the space then what got him excited about the space now and 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 try and dig into a few of the war stories you know what was it like to have Sonny Lou from VeChain walk through the door and 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 pitch, or Brian from Coinbase pitch. You know what? What was that energy like? What was that kind of experience? And did they know they were, you know, game changers early on? I really enjoyed the interview. Hope you do too. Welcome, Andy. Super excited to have you on the show. Great, thank you. Awesome to be here, Andy. It wouldn't be right if I didn't kick off the, the you know the series without you know uh, yourself and uh, you know. Draper family kind of kicking off the series. So super excited to have you today. And, um, you know, really, really an incredible bio that I'd love to go through. And I usually start, you know, just to give the audience a bit of context and a bit of background about who our guest is um, with a little bit about your background. Um, and I usually start, I mean, you can take it as far back as you like, but I usually start with a question um, was there a mother or father that was an entrepreneur? I really want to kind of set the scene and what, what kind of gave you that entrepreneurial bug early on. 
Oh, um, so, you know, I'm, I'm from a uh, entrepreneurial family, you know, generations of, um, of merchants in China, but, uh, but after they uh, uh, escaped China uh, after World War II, um, they all became uh, very um, sort of, uh, uh, my dad was, uh, uh, my dad went into military, my mom's teacher, um, and then I think the entrepreneurial spirit returned to my dad. He started his own company. Um, but I would say I, kind of growing up, I really didn't know what entrepreneurship um, was. Um, so uh, it, it was very much something I have uh, re- I've discovered uh, later in life. And was it like, I mean, I'm, I, I, given your background, were you just tinkering around with with computers and 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 in, like any machine you could get a hold of, by the look of it. <laughs> uh, you know, so so we moved to the United States when I was thirteen, um, and I studied engineering, um, and I've always had an interest uh, in uh, computers. Uh, I went to a inner city high school. Um, you know, I remember the first day of school. Where, you know, I show up and I saw these metal detectors. I was like, "Wow, this is great!" You know, America is a very safe place. Uh, they keep the schools uh, very safe. Uh, so, um, that was definitely not, not the right, uh, conclusion. Um, but, but, uh, you know, that, that was, uh, that, that worked out. Okay. That, that worked, worked out. Okay. Uh, I think one thing led to another, you know, uh, I actually had a really good, um, uh, believe it or not in the inner city high school, we actually had, uh, computer science and it was, I think it was a computer um, it was a computer class. They, they, there was a room full of uh, Macintosh computers and we were able to use it. Uh, went to the University of Texas. You know, I studied um, computer engineering, sort of got more into it. Um, and then uh, met my graduate advisor. Uh, and he was just an inspiring uh, person. He became my mentor. Um, his name was Raphael Reif. He was the president of MIT. So... Uh, so I did my master's under um, Professor Reif, Raphael Reif, um, and um, really just, you know, I was really trained to become a professor. So, so hence explains my passion about working with Draper University. I've always wanted to be a teacher. Um, but one thing led to another. Um, I started doing my research at MIT uh, with Intel and then, after my master's, they recruited me to join them uh, in what was supposed to be a just a couple years of rotation program, and then uh, maybe go back to uh, to get my PhD. But I never left. So instead, three years uh, at Intel, I met another uh, incredible boss who went to uh, Northwestern for his MBA, and he suggested I um, go to business school. So I went to Warden, uh, and uh, and there I met. Um, a fellow by the name of Frank Quatron. He was uh, a graduate of Warden School and one of the most incredible banker on Wall Street. And he recruited me to join Credit Suisse First Boston. So I did investment banking for a couple of years. Uh, so if you, if you see the trend here, it always seems like I met somebody and I was very fortunate to have a great mentor and they kind of pointed me in the right direction, uh, supposedly the right direction. I think it worked out pretty well. Um, 
So um, spent, yeah, yeah, spent two years on Wall Street. Um, and then uh, <laughs> I, I met my next boss. He was working at Siemens. He was in charge of Siemens investing. Uh, and then um, and then he recruited me. And that was how I got into investing in uh, e- the year 2001. Can, can I ask, Andy, just to, to, to cut you short a little bit, but the, the transition from like, you know, senior engineer at Intel to investment banker, I mean, there must be a bit of a steep learning curve that happened there. Oh, it, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't that bad, actually. Um, you know, I think if you could do engineering, I feel like you, you, they, they, they taught me to convince I could do anything. Um, so I, I feel like going from engineering to business was pr- pretty simple. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so, so technically it was very simple. Uh, but, but I think it's one of those, it's almost like one of those uh, social games. It's easy to get started, but very difficult to get really good. You know, engineering is a hard game to get started, but once you once you once you pay the initial dues, then it gets easier. But I feel like business is a little bit different. Business is anybody could get started, but not at least one from what I've seen. It is very difficult to get really good. Um, and I even I am still learning, right? And I find that engineering really uh, business is a, just a game of experience. And so you end up now, you end up now you're in Silicon Valley. Um, well, I don't want to skip. So you investment banker, but kind of in the technology group. So it's like kind of all the, all the hottest trends, I guess, emerging and, you know, the um, kind of, I guess, the experience is kind of ripe for Silicon Valley. You end up in Silicon Valley. Where does it go to from here? Uh, so I, so I um, started investing here um, and it's business is it's like one of those things I mentioned seems very easy to enter. How hard is it? How hard is it to write a check and invest in somebody? You know, it's very easy, right? Writing a check is probably the easiest thing you could think of, but it's what you do after you write the check um, that, that kind of determines how good you are. Obviously, you know, you know, who you write a check to determines how good you are as well. But um, I think the hardest thing really happens after you invest in a company, how, you do, how do you help them, um, you know, become better and, um, you know, applying just the right enough of attention to each company, not, not too much, not too little. Um, and d- did that for three years. Um, and I've always taken a service mentality to the companies I invest in. Um, they are the client. I am the supplier of capital. Uh, and I noticed that a lot of my clients, these founders, were leaving Silicon Valley. And this was in year 2005. They were all moving to China. And these, these are not just ethnic Chinese um, entrepreneurs. Many of them are um, international founders moving to China, um, doing startups. That's when I decided I want to follow my founders and, uh, and set up shop in China. Um, and that was actually also when I met uh, Tim Draper, and he was in the process of moving to China. Uh, his, he, was in the pro- he was in the process of uh, starting um, the Draper Fund in China. So we teamed up and launched the Draper Dragon Fund, which was uh, Tim's uh, China vehicle. And can you talk about that? Like, just how did you guys get together? How did that? I mean, it's like a long lasting relationship now, but yeah, going back, yeah. Can you remember that early days? Yeah. 
Yeah, so you know, I invested in a company when I was at Siemens uh, with uh, Warren Packer. Warren Packer was one of Tim's um, uh, partners at DFJ. So Warren and I had a great relationship, um, and I co-invested with uh, with Warren and DFJ in a company called Dimago Scientific. Um, and through that, I got to know the DFJ guys. And then uh, we had also a few partners from the um, Dragon side that have done business with with Tim and DFJ. So so we basically got together. Um, so oftentimes, what you'll find is that uh, in venture, uh, there is a very healthy dose of co-opetition. We always co-invest, and through co-investment, you meet people. Through meeting people, working together, you develop um, trust and understanding of each other. Um, and so when we both wanted to go to China, it was uh, uh, natural for me to team up with, with Tim and um, the rest of our Triple Dragon partners. Can I ask, so this was like, if I get the story correct, well, Tim was one of the first, um, well, if, if not the first U.S. investor in Baidu. Is that correct? And was that with that's right? With Tim, Tim made exactly. Tim had made uh, three marquee landmark investments in Chinese venture capital, uh, and those were Baidu, Focus Media, and Kongzhong. Um, those three deals were, at the time, three of the largest IPO. Baidu is still probably one of the largest IPO in um, China venture capital history. Um, so Tim has always been known as a visionary and pioneer of both technology and um, emerging market business. So in this case, he did both. He was the first Sandhill investor to go to China and um, invest in essentially raw startups and take them all the way from raw startup to um, multi-billion dollar uh, NASDAQ IPO. Incredible. And and so, but, you know, you yourself also just so you just you know kind of both bullish on China and you just both saw something pretty early on that no one else was seeing right except for like perhaps some of these founders that you were saying were leaving right right exactly so it was a it was a trend that we were both following um, and sort of came to the uh, the the natural conclusion together you know. So and, and and then so you you know you seem to be doing a lot more uh, over the years after this kind of you know initial relationship building. But maybe can you talk a little bit about the you know the origins I, I guess of of the Draper Dragon Fund? Um, yes, uh, the Draper Dragon Fund uh, was started in two thousand five when both Tim Draper and I saw um, a lot of our uh, entrepreneurs moving to China. Um, and these are Silicon Valley entrepreneurs starting business in China, either to take advantage of the uh, vast market in China um, or to take advantage of the, uh, uh, the advantageous cost position and a, a new, the rise of uh, uh, new engineers in China. Um, so both from a sort of a uh, market size as well as uh, uh, attractive uh, uh, cost of R&D. Um, so we both have the same investment thesis that it's going to be a big market and also it would be a great place to set up R&D. Um, so we just set up a early stage fund uh, in 2005 uh, and that was the origin of it. 
And can I ask, and this is going to be, this is a, going to be quite the conversation, I, I imagine, Andy, um, where, how does crypto come into the space? Is this, you know, Tim showing up at work one day, super excited about Bitcoin. How does this kind of evolve where it becomes, you know, kind of uh, leads you to get so excited, you know, both from a Draper Associates perspective and a Draper Dragon perspective to start, you know, taking um, these bets on, you know, um, crazy new business models? Um, so uh, crypto came into place in 2000. Ken, I came back to the U.S. Um, when we had our first child. Um, and in 2012, uh, I helped Tim um, jumpstart uh, Drip University. And in 2000, around 2013, I think when Adam, Adam Draper started Boost, uh, and my wife used to work with Adam's wife, and through that, I learned about Bitcoin in 2013. So, so, so got it interested and just started investing personally uh, into Bitcoin. Um, and so that was sort of my journey and discovery of um, crypto was really through um, investing in Adams Fund and then uh, investing in Boost uh, and then uh, kind of learning about um, crypto, uh, and I think Tim, in parallel, he learned about crypto um, from one of his old partners, Joe Yarman. Um, so there was almost a parallel learning curve for everybody right, right around that time frame. Um, and in terms of Draper Dragon, um, so Larry Lee, my my longtime partner in um, Draper Dragon, uh, he started. Um, looking at it when I um, introduced this concept to him in 2016 or so, 16 or 17. Um, so that's when we started investing in um, crypto companies, actually maybe 15 even. Um, so we started investing in crypto projects in 2015 timeframe. And in 2017, we actually launched a crypto fund. Uh, so Larry um, led this effort at Draper Dragon and, and raised a dedicated crypto fund. And that was the first crypto fund. Um, and in 2021, last year, um, uh, Richard, Eric, uh, Richard Wong and Eric Gu and Larry Lee uh, uh, and I, we launched our second crypto fund. Um, so you, as you can see, it's a, it really was a um, kind of a journey that went from uh, personally buying into crypto, learning about crypto, uh, and then um, and then had uh, uh, had our general fund, IT fund, investing in crypto projects, and those projects tend to be software projects, not not token specific deals. Uh, and then um, eventually uh, we raised a, a crypto specific fund. So it really was an evolution. You know, I think outside looking in, this space happened very quickly. But I think for us, every step of the way, we have been pretty cautious, actually been um, slowly getting into uh, to the space. Every step was very steady. And, and I can see I jumped, jumped a few years there as you were explaining that. 
Um, but can I ask some of the, like, um, again, like the early days, you know, the Coinbase, you know, pitching to you guys or, you know, VeChain walking through the door. Can you, can you just share some of those moments that you reflect on? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There are a few, there, there are a few, um, it's, uh, you know, this last two years have been really tough for humanity, but for the tech market, it really has uh, accelerated. And, and in my career uh, also has I've had been very fortunate. I think I logged um, as of this year, I've had 10 unicorns that I have seeded um, and about half of them are crypto deals. <laughs> um, so, and I can share with you a few of these investments um, and you mentioned VeChain. So VeChain is a great example. And it's um, one of the deals that I'm, I'm most proud of, even though I didn't do it. Uh, I'm very proud of my, my, uh, my partner, Larry Lee, has seeded this investment. So Sunny and Larry, they were both part of the Shanghai um, entrepreneurial community for years, years before there's even such a thing as crypto. Uh, you know, Sunny was just a great entrepreneur. Um, and, uh, you know, came out of a Louis Vuitton, um, you know, uh, innovation labs, uh, was looking for technology to, to solve the counterfeit issue. Uh, and, and Larry was one of the first seed investors who, who invested in VeChain and equity. Um, and so we've known Sunny for, I feel like, feels like almost 10 years. I'm sure, the, basically as, for as long as VeChain had existed. Um, and, and IOTX is the same way. It's a, it's a, it's a company that I got to know Jing and Roland, you know, when we there just two people in a piece of paper supported that project. Um, and then there's also, uh, Oasis Labs, Professor Song out of Berkeley, got to know her very early on and supported her first project. Um, and, and now these are all billion dollar, you know, layer one networks. Um, Certik is another another uh, founder, um, also academic background, just tr tremendous engineers. Um, they're the gold standard for um, uh, verification and um, code audit for smart contracts. So it's very important, very important um, service they provide to uh, to the community. Um, and you know, and then and then the list goes on. You know. Um, uh, and I think in almost all of these stories, there's a in all in almost all of these unicorn uh, investment um, outcome, there is a founder story of how a person was inspired to solve a problem, uh, ran into multiple challenges, persevered, um, and then um, triumphed. Um, but I, I would say, you know, the blockchain or crypto industry is still very early. I think we're probably only seeing the first inning of um, this nine-inning um, baseball game, as, as we would call it in the U.S. Um, so there's still a lot of um, uh, baseball to be to, to be played. Absolutely, sounds like the the hero's journey. That's right. That's right. Indeed, a hero's journey. <laughs> Um, I, I started with, you know, like some of the business models that, you know, you see come through in, in Web3 are just really novel and, and exciting to me. And I don't think that some of them could occur in Web2. Oh, I see. You know? and, and I'm just curious, what, what kind of gets you super excited about the space? So, so Web3, we have to credit the, 
um, the polka dot foundation for coining this term. Um, but it's a, it's, it's a, it's a very natural and, um, um, and elegant next step for the evolution of the classic client um, server computing um, structure. Uh, if you could think back to when people first invented a computer, the mainframe, you have sort of dumb terminals that you, that relies on the mainframe to do computing. Um, and then personal computers came out, and, you know, it's a, it's all great again. So you have, you could do a lot more on your laptop than, than your, um, than, than your, uh, than your mainframe. And then when your phone comes out, suddenly your phone is sort of the dumb device uh, initially, right? It's just a phone. And then maybe you could do some browsing, some very basic browsing. Um, you know, I think what we're proposing here is uh, as the phone becomes more, uh, more uh, powerful, uh, it can uh, take place uh, what the PCs used to do. But the phone has this yet third dimension of mobility, right? So you have mobile computing on the run. So the old, the old um, uh, client server model suddenly shift back to a powerful client again. So it is a very natural evolution of computing. Uh, and the, some of the, new business model that could result from this, we have already seen, you know, the share economy is one that happened the web two that was very novel in the last 10 years. Um, but if you take it to the next level and say suddenly uh, these mobile clients become super powerful, uh, you could actually have a, um, a decentralized model where computing is done on the edge. A lot of decisions could be done on the edge. We saw a little bit of this in the peer-to-peer -peer networking uh, that proves uh, uh, networking could be done peer-to-peer -peer without going through the, the, um, the center, right? Um, but we're basically proposing you could do even more, right? You, instead of having needing a bank who keeps track of everyone's ledger, you could suddenly have everyone tracking everyone else's ledger. So you don't need a central um, server entity. Um, and if you sort of take that, push that model a little bit further, what you'll find is in just an abundance of decentralized applications um, in finance, uh, in gaming, uh, in, uh, uh, in um, communication, uh, in social media, uh, anything that we currently go to a central server model, um, you know, it eventually could just be done over your phone. Uh, and what, what that allows you to do is um, you not only disintermediate the, the player, so which means, you know, more value will go to the consumer. So you don't have to pay the broker, basically. Um, in addition, your information um, is, is, is with you and not being um, uh, kept by this uh, centralized player. Um, and that does two things, right? The first thing is um, the centralized player wouldn't sell your information or monetize it, right? If you want your information sold, at least you want to keep the profit, right? Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is 
um, oftentimes these centralized players are big targets for hacks, right? For most of us, right? You may think, oh, some of these guys are pretty famous and, you know, uh, they probably get hacked all the time. You know, there are a lot of famous people in this world, right? Most hackers don't have time to hack individuals. It's not a strong return on investment. Hackers rather hack, you know, slightly more difficult, but in terms of our, you know, ROI, you know, these large central, you know, depository or information. So there's that nonlinear relationship, right? These depositories might be 10 times harder to hack than an individual, but the reward is a million times more. So guess what? You're going to be hacking, you know, Microsoft and Google and Facebook before they will hack you as an individual because it's not worth their time. Right. So, so I think that, you know, as you have these powerful mobile computers, your phone um, becoming nodes, um, you could really have some really interesting uh, decentralized um, client oriented applications. Absolutely. And, and just switching gears and I'm mindful of your, of your time here, Andy, um, can you go a little bit into like, you know, um, Draper University and entrepreneurial education, some of the benefits that you've seen, you know, being kind of ground zero in, in a new approach to, to learning and, and some of the kind of uh, the outcomes that you're, you're proud of. You know, the, 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 the thing that I'm most proud of that we have accomplished at Draper University is uh, the, the training we provided people to, uh, rediscover the entrepreneurial spirit. Um, people say that you can't teach entrepreneur, uh, you can't teach entrepreneurship. I think you can, maybe it's very difficult to teach entrepreneurial spirit, but it's that innate um, um, capability we all have. It's almost like a stem cell, right? Everybody has stem cell. Right. But over time, you know, you start developing the society or education, start building things on the stem cell. You kind of lost track of your innate ability. So I think Draper University's to, well, I'm, I'm most proud that we have taught our students to just rediscover that child within yourself. Right. L let that creativity, let that, you know, passion, let that, um, you don't know what you don't know spirit to come out, right? To dream a little um, yep. and reach for the star. That, that is what I'm most proud of. And, and in terms of outcome, this is such a fundamental transformation of people, right? Uh, you'll see the outcome result in different sectors. I have had great students who've gone, in, gone back to get their PhD and working on cancer research, of which I'm very proud of. Whether they start a company or not, I think just you know reaching for the stars. You know, don't don't look for a incremental improvement in healthcare, but you know, cure cancer, right? Make huge things happen. I'm proud of that. Um, we have students who have gone into you know become a regulator in Singapore. If you think about it, well, that sounds incredibly you know traditional, right? It's not. Why would you be proud of that? I'm really proud of it because. She is in charge of helping Singapore writing the most advanced securities regulation to for innovative fintech companies. So that is super cool because then 
even though she's not an entrepreneur herself, she's helping other entrepreneurs succeed because she understands how the challenges entrepreneurs faced. Um, I have students who have gone on to work at big companies that work in their, um, you know, their uh, corporate R&D or strategy program. Um, well, that should be obvious why it's important because these are the folks who will be working with entrepreneurs uh, in startups that will either help them along, maybe um, uh, do a JV or maybe acquire them, um, or maybe they have a spinoff, a startup startup could buy. You know, they, they could do all kinds of things. They, and then and the most obvious ones are the um, entrepreneurs who started companies. I have um, uh, entrepreneurs who started companies, you know, Patrick Dye, who started Qtem, uh, who was one of the very early um, inspiring um, layer one network that wants to put smart contract on the Bitcoin network. Right? It's just very interesting and inspiring. It's not easy. Um, you know, but but we we love the guy and we love his vision for it, um, and we uh, we also invested in a company called Ten Forty Seven. You know, Ian Pru was uh, a student from our first class in two thousand twelve, um, and and he has a unicorn company in the um, in the gaming space. Uh, you know, the, you know lo lots of users, and um, he loves gaming and. Um, and then we just decided if you really love gaming, you're really passionate about it, we want to back you and, and see where you could take this business. And he did it, you know, um, the, the over 10 million users and, and counting. Um, and he started from scratch out of the dorm room at Stanford, dorm room 1047. Uh, that was in, uh, the, 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 the origin of the, of the company's name. Um, so we have countless number of examples oh lemon cash is the other one um you know lemon cash was started by a du alum and um uh wanted to bring uh, wanted to solve a problem for uh, latin americans um a lot of these uh, people are uh, of the social economic level where they're not bankable by the large bank standards um but they still have banking needs um so lemon cash provides um a, a crypto wallet and a credit card that allow these um, um, users to um, conduct micropayments using crypto. And it also solves another huge problem, which is inflation on the ground. Um, so that uh, people could uh, convert their paychecks and whatnot into crypto and hold it um, and not leave it in fiat, which they know is going to, you know, um, suffer from inflation. So, um, and this is a recently, a recently minted unicorn as well. So, so there's, there's a lot uh, going on. And one thing they all share from unicorn founders to, you know, uh, FinTech startup regulator in Singapore to, you know, Stanford, uh, you know, cancer scientist, is that they they all embrace change and they all swing for the fences, you know, something uh, significant. Um, and they all um, are uh, really hardworking and, um, and passionate entrepreneurs with a lot of grit, right? And, and that, that's what I'm most proud of. It's amazing, Andy. And, and, and just, just final question, if you'll indulge me. Um, 
you know, 10 plus unicorns that you seeded, um, you know, how, how, what's kind of keeping you getting out of bed and, and being as passionate as you are and preventing you from complacency? I'm just curious what, what's, what's driving you now? Yeah, I, I, think, um, I, I think it's, it's looking for the next story. And I'm always really curious to meet uh, founders with uh, interesting um, solutions to biggest problems humanity face, right? Um, crypto solves a, a, a finance problem. It, it solves a, um, a, uh, a natural evolution of client-server computing architecture, right? We know it's, it's got to evolve, right? So that, that's, that was sort of a very intriguing technical problem and social problem to solve. Uh, I am also uh, very interested in meeting entrepreneurs who could solve healthcare problems. Uh, why is it so expensive to solve um, for these healthcare treatments, right? I think COVID, if it taught us anything, um, you know, healthcare um, companies can actually move fast. The vaccine used to take you know, four or five years to come to market. But when we really need to, um, we're able to bring COVID vaccine into market in less than a year, right? Uh, why can we do that for every drug, right? Of course, you're going to say, well, because COVID was a lot more pervasive, we put all the resources behind it. Yeah, but, you know, I think, you know, if you look at other um, causes for death, like cancer and diabetes, or there are all kinds of diseases. Can we apply... Um, a lot of these computing, um, new computing um, techniques and um, AI algorithms to help with drug discovery so we could cut down on time and the cost? I think the answer is yes. Right? I'm just waiting for the right entrepreneur, to, and we have backed a few, uh, to come along and try to, try to transform that industry. Um, you look at government too, right? There are a lot of um, government um, uh, um, services I think can probably use an IT upgrade. Um, fi finance just happened to be one, right? Printing money and the monetary policy, that just happened to be one place where you could use an IT upgrade by using, say, let's use a crypto, right? Others, right? Voting, right? Governance structure. Um, you know, there's got to be a better way to vote uh, than what we have um, in place right now. I mean, the whole voting system, right? Um, paper votes and um, voting in person, the ballot. Um, I, I just think that uh, a lot of the government services could, could probably use an upgrade. So, so yeah, what keeps me up, I, I'm waiting for smart people to come and teach me about um, novel approaches that um, they found that they think they could solve significant um, problems faced by the humanity. Amazing. Big one. Uh, thank you very much, Andy. Really appreciate your time and um, and and support. And yeah, love what you're doing. And um, glad to be part of it in a small way. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. These are great questions. Taking you back to reality. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, stay up to date by joining our Discord at DraperUniversity.com. Please disembark.